morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Thank you all for braving the, the winter wonderland that's out there. If you're joining us on live stream, welcome, guys. Hope that you're able to worship well in the comfort of your own home. It's nice and warm there. Um, and we're excited. We get to celebrate the Lord this morning. Another thing we get to celebrate is it's actually a National Sanctity of Life Day. And so we wanna pause and praise God that he is for the lives of the unborn. And because he is, and because scripture is clear about that, we as a church wanna reflect that in the way um, that we spend our resources and our time and our energy. And so one of the organizations we partner with is Loving Choices. They're a local organization. So if you wanna learn more about um, what they do as an organization or, or maybe get involved, there's that QR code on the screen there. Um, you can take a picture of that and visit, uh, visit their website, and we'll throw that up uh, on the screen again at the end of the service, too. Um, but as always, we also want to celebrate the redemption we have through our Lord Jesus. So we're going to sing about that this morning. So let's stand together. Let's sing songs of praise. Yes, next. 
Jesus 
opportunity to hear from other people, to hear biblical principles on how to spend your money wisely, save your money, uh, give money, and it brought us on the same page. We've been married 10 years. Two years ago, we were in a community group and we were going through a study called The Fine Portrait which is a marriage study. I had been struggling with debt my entire life, and it was one of these things that I had hidden uh, in that study. One week, it was just one of these situations that it was really pounding on my heart to tell Laura, but I didn't want to. Satan was telling me it would be harder to do that, just continue on the road you've done. I kept getting these phone calls oh, yeah. from credit cards, and I was like, I don't have any credit cards. And then that was the night that you told me and it, it was just a web of lies that I had dug myself into. And finally that night after community group, we put the kids to bed and I said, hey, I got to talk. And I, I laid it out. It was the hardest thing I've done uh, in our marriage. And the next few months were extremely hard to the point where the only thing I could really feel was God holding me up. When Chris first told me about the debt, my initial reaction, of course, was anger. My anger could have gone a route that I know the Lord would not have been pleased with, but his timing was perfect in that I was in a Bible study on spiritual warfare. And something I took away from that was that the enemy wants nothing more than separation, even though it was a hard few months. I realized that it was a commitment that I had made to Chris. We got to talking with my father and my mother, and that got us on a path of stability to where things looked manageable. A couple months after that, um, we got asked to, to be part of a financial peace class. Then immediately we're like, yes, let's do this. We have worked together for a budget. We talk about, you know, what we're spending, where this, the money is going. We get pumped. I mean, it's like pull up where we are and, and, and see how much we've paid off. I mean, we had 38,000 going into it. And so we started September of last year of 18 with a five-year plan to pay off 38000 which seemed great, and uh, at this point, we'll be paid off by... December? Yeah. So, a year and a half. 
no matter what amount of debt you have, there is hope. The challenge is go tell somebody because grace is going to be given. That was my biggest fear. But the reality was the moment I told them, it was, yes, anger, because there was anger and that should be expected. And then right after that, it was, let's do this. Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. I am excited to be here with you guys on this snowy Sunday morning. My name is Scott Morozik, and I am blessed to serve as the Connections Coordinator here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Now to kick off this morning, I have a couple new classes for you guys that's going to start this new year. The first one being Financial Peace University. Now, being having been a finance major myself, I am excited for this class because I know how hard managing your finances can be. For some of us, it's easy, but for others, it can be very difficult to plan a budget um, or save for your future. And so I love this class because it's in the name, Financial Peace. We want you guys to have peace about your finances. We want you guys to stay out of debt or get out of debt if you're in debt. We want you guys to be able to save and plan for the now, but not only the now, but also the future. And so this class is kicking off starting January 30th. It's gonna be during the 1030 service in the classroom over here to my right. And if you guys have any questions, there's going to be a couple out in the Connections booth that would love to answer any questions that you guys have. Now the other class that I have you guys for you guys this morning is one that's very dear to me. Um, it's one that I love and I'm excited to tell you guys about because if you guys are like me and you wanted to kick off this new year, wanting to know about who God is, what is this word that he's given us, or you just want to know about what's on his heart, this class is called Perspectives, and it's going to be 15 weeks. It's going to have challenging material taught by great pastors and global workers from around the world. And so, like I said, this is very dear to me because I've already taken it twice, and I have learned so much from it. It has changed my own perspective of how I read my Bible. It is no longer about me, 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 or I no longer read it just about me, 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 but more about who God is, what is he doing in this world, and what is the role that I can play in his story. And so this class is not happening here, but it's actually happening right down the road at the CMM headquarters, and it is actually starting this Thursday. Um, the first night is free, so I'd love for you guys to check it out. If you need more info, you can follow that QR code up above. And so these are two great opportunities for you guys to check out, um, and I really, really recommend them. So with that being said, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning to come and worship you. God, you deserve all the praise and glory. God, would you be with us this morning as we read and study your word? Would you open our eyes and our ears to understand your word? God, would you speak through Garland? God, would you give him the words to say? And God, would you just help us to understand? It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship this morning. And who am I that the highest king would welcome me? And I was lost, but he brought me in all oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Sing it out, church.
that your grace runs deep. Thank you for your mercy and your peace. Thank you that you're with the sick today. You're with the healthy. You're here in this room. Lord, I pray that you would speak through Garland and God, just fill us up with your word so that we can pour out as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. Good morning. Snowpocalypse. Everybody made it in today? Feeling good? Join us in the live stream. Good morning. Uh, my name is Garland, and uh, as, I, as I kind of consider the, the, the various big grand narratives in, in our culture, in our, in our world, we've got some that are fictional that we enjoy, these, these stories of good versus evil, these stories where there's a bad guy, there's an enemy that gets taken out, there's a, there's a common delight that we all share when we partake in these narratives or something that we're all rooting for when we watch these stories unfold. Let me give you a couple of examples. So uh, not, maybe not everybody in here is a Star Wars fan, but most of us probably are at least aware of the narrative of Star Wars. 
And when you watch the stories all unfold in all the various movies, as you're watching the movies unfold, you see this evil empire. And they've done atrocious things, like they've murdered by the millions. They've destroyed entire planets. And as you're watching the narrative unfold, you have this desire, like you want the emperor to die. Like you want the Death Star to get blown up. Like you're rooting for it. This is the ultimate bad guy and you want them to get theirs in the end. Like maybe a little, a little more fun example, a movie I'm sure most of us have seen. But when you watch The Lion King, this grand narrative of good versus evil, like if you think about Scar and the hyenas, Scar has brutally murdered Mufasa, the good and gentle king. And he has brought the hyenas, they have destroyed Pride Rock, and it's, everything's turned to black. And in the movie, as it unfolds, when the lions come back and Simba comes back, you want Scar to get his. Like, in, when you watch the movie, when the hyenas come and surround him at the end, they kill him, right? We let our kids watch this movie, but you, you are aware of what's going on there, right? Like, Scar gets surrounded, the hyenas jump on him, and they kill him, and we're all like, he deserves it. He needs to get his in the end, Scar. And we let our kids watch it, and we're rooting for that. Now, these are fictional lies, so they're kind of silly, they're kind of trite. And it brings a sentiment out, though, that's, I think, true in real life as well. When I just look out at our world, like, this is, uh, this is Toby Keith, and uh, many of you know who this is. He's a country music star. And uh, after 9-11, he, he wrote a song that uh, was essentially a song of revenge. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous song for anybody in the, in the room that knows country music. Let me just give you a little bit of the sentiment of the song. Here's some of the lyrics of the song. He wrote this right after 9-11 as we were going into Afghanistan and later into Iraq. He, here's the words of the song. He says, justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle its cage and you'll be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A., it's Uncle Sam's, he's got your name. If you know the song, you're like, man, I wanna sing that. The other day, I was, when I put these in there, I had this in my head all day long. Uncle Sam's got your name at the top of his list. Look at the last two lines. And when we come and get our revenge on you, it'll feel like the whole wide world is raining down on you. And it's brought to you courtesy of red, white, and blue. Now, if you're not a country music fan, this is probably why you hate country music. The picture and the words. You're like, I don't get any of that. By the way, this is a classic. This is a great song. It brings a sentiment out. And I think, like, I like the song. When I hear the song, there's, it does something in me that goes, yeah, get them. That a friend of mine was, was telling me this story. This, this happened a few years ago. Uh, he, he was watching the news unfold of, uh, of one of these battle scenes in uh, Afghanistan or Iraq. And uh, we dropped this, this really large bomb, it's called the Moab, on some enemy combatant somewhere. And him and his friends are, are watching it, and as they're watching it, they're kind of delighted. And, and they're, they're sort of like, whoa, look at that, it's amazing, that's huge, that, that took out a bunch of guys. They're kind of almost, the, the sentiment is almost a high five atmosphere. And my friend tells me, he looks over, and one of the friends that's watching them watch this video of this unfolding is a foreign exchange student from the Middle East who's watching it with them. And as he's watching it, he's not delighted. And he's, he's not laughing and he's not high-fiving. And my friend telling me the story says, in that moment, something in me, I went, that, something's broken in me. I'm delighted watching this. And my friend who's watching this with me, what does it say to him? 
Now, we're going to talk this morning about compassion. We're going to talk about mercy. We're going to talk about forgiveness as we continue our series here in this challenging little book of Jonah. We're going to do some deep truths, some hard truths about this concept of compassion. It might be helpful for us to just define it right out the gate. So let's define it. Here's just a dictionary definition for compassion. Here it is. It's a, it's a feeling of deep sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune or pain or brokenness, and it's accompanied with a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. This is a regular old run-of-the-mill definition for this word compassion. And when you think about it, we desperately need this, this sort of ability to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, to understand where they come from, then, then to respond with empathy, with mercy, with forgiveness towards them. Like when you and your spouse, those of you married in the room, get in conflict, oftentimes it's because of a lack of this that your conflict occurred in the first place. And usually it's some form of compassion or forgiveness or mercy that enables you to have reconciliation, to understand where they were coming from. Otherwise, you'll just dig your heels in in your relationships with your roommates, in your relationships with your people at work, in your relationship with your kids. We need a great deal of this. It's, it's the glue that almost makes society function, and yet, it seems that when I look out in our world right now, there seems to be a glaring lack of this. Think about our political discourse right now in the country that we find ourselves in. Not a lot of compassion, not a lot of empathy, Instead, we dig our heels in. We don't come in and say, let me understand your side. Let me understand why you believe that way. Let me understand why you think that way. No, it's my take, my way, my news, what I watch. Get out of here. We demonize and vilify. In a world that desperately needs this, and in a world that seems to be lacking it, how do we get it back? Like, what does it look like to see this rush into a society or rush into a church. And as we look at Jonah 3, here's our three points today just gonna help us outline and orient ourselves to the passage. First, we're gonna see that compassion is hard. It's really difficult. It's challenging. We're gonna have some honest assessment. Next, we're gonna ask, and, and I get it, what, surely there's a limit to this, right? Surely there's a limit to my expectation of forgiveness or mercy. What's my limit? And Better yet, what's God's? And last, we're gonna see that compassion changes everything. Compassion is really, really hard. What are its limits? And we're gonna see that we desperately need it. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Jonah chapter three. By the way, there ain't no shame in using the table of contents, all right? You're not a super Christian because you know where it is. So use the table of contents. It's like two pages, so it's really hard to find. It's in those minor prophets section of your Old Testament that we don't go to all that often, but they're really cool. So the book of Jonah, we're gonna continue our, our study here as we look at Jonah chapter three. As you're turning there, let me catch you up on what's, what's happened in the story so far. Here's how it begins. Jonah, the prophet of Israel, is told, hey, go to Nineveh, and I got a message for you to, to share with them there. And what we see is that Jonah runs the opposite direction. Like he goes as far the other way as he possibly can. This, this, this creates for us a need to do some historical deep dive. We've got to do some background understanding of what's going on here, or Jonah doesn't really make sense. It kind of falls flat. So we've got to understand who are the Ninevites? What is this city that he's being asked to go to? And, and this, we'll do a little work here. So Nineveh is a, 
It was the New York City, we might say, of the ancient Assyrian Empire. It's an important city. It's an impressive city. It's a city with lots of trade flowing in and out of it. At the time, it's one of the largest cities in the entire world. And as the New York City of the Assyrian Empire, what that means is it's the leading city of the biggest nation in the world at the time. Like in this part of the world, these are the big dogs on the block. These are the powerful ones. Uh, Jonah's life is the early 700s, and the book of Jonah is probably being written somewhere in this time when the Assyrians and then their, and their empire has held sway over this entire part of the world. Now, all historians and scholars note one thing about the Assyrians. They all note this. They were outrageously brutal. The Assyrians are known for their brutality, for their violence. They conquered by violence. They conquered through fear. They conquered with pain. And they would besiege a city if the people were able to get behind the wall, the way that they would try to encourage them to surrender is everybody that was outside the wall that they captured, they would torture them in these horrendous ways. I'll describe a couple for you. One, they would lay them, stretch them out, and then begin to flay their skin off their bodies and rip it back so that the people behind the wall would go, okay, we surrender. The Assyrians are the ones who actually invented the idea of running somebody up on a pole or a tree or a piece of wood that they hang and slowly die over time. Uh, the, the Romans later took the same concept, and they thought that you died too quickly with the Assyrian method, so they would string you up this way on a cross. The Assyrians would run it through the kind of the stomach area. And so as they captured people outside the city, they would impale people by the hundreds or the thousands and say, you want to surrender now? They're a bloodthirsty, violent, pagan nation. They have taken everything in their path. And then they're heinous. Everybody in the ancient world was terrified of this people. And it might be clear, I think, why Jonah ran the other way. Like, I'm going that way instead of that way. Now, the story of Jonah is meant to make you, it's meant to be humorous. It's meant to make you think. Jonah runs the opposite way, and they've got to ask the question, why? Now, I think definitely there's some fear involved. Wouldn't you be afraid? There's definitely some fear involved. But we're going to see in chapter 4, and I'm going to leave, I'm going to, uh, I don't want to steal all the thunder from next week. But we're going to see in chapter 4, there's a deeper why for Jonah running the opposite way. Here's the deeper why. He's nervous that God might forgive them. And he doesn't want them to get forgiven. He wants them to fry. He's running the opposite way because he suspects God very well might just forgive them and show them mercy. And he does not want that. So he's run the opposite way. He gets swallowed by the fish. He gets spit up onto the land. And now, we don't know when this is. This is a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later. The word of the Lord comes to him again. It's the same language of chapter one. It's a little bit different in what God asks of him. Here's the message of the Lord. I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. Jonah, we got a plan here. Yes, you've run. Let's get back on track. I want you to go to Nineveh because I have a message for them there. Let's see if Jonah's learned his lesson. It says he obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. And by the way, Nineveh is a great and large city. It took three days to kind of walk around the region 
of Nineveh, what has Jonah learned about God? He's, he's gone, he's obeyed, yes. He's made the trek to Nineveh. But as he understood who his God is, let's look at his message. Now, I got a bone to pick with a storybook Bible here, real fast, okay? We have three Jesus storybook Bibles, they're awesome. We, use, we have one for each of our kids, we love them. We read them almost every night. I love that Bible. The authors did a great job taking the whole of scripture and working it down to little three-page stories that my kids can understand and they all point to Jesus. They did a great job. But in December, we were on the Jonah section, the Jonah chapter, and I was reading it with my seven-year-old and I came to the page of Jonah chapter three. Jonah one, he gets spit, uh, Jonah refuses to obey. Jonah two, he's in, the, he's in the belly of the fish. Then he gets spit up, and here's the page from Jonah chapter three. Here it is. And if you can see, Jonah, he's got a big smile on his face, and his arm is up like a superhero. And he's smiling, and his arm's up, and he's really, really excited. And here's what it says. He has a, God has a wonderful message to give to them, and I, I've, I've printed it here so you can see it. What is, jo- what is on the lips of Jonah in the storybook Bible in chapter three? He finally obeys, he goes to Nineveh, and here's what they got him saying. Hey, Ninevites, even though you're far from God, and even though you've run from him, he can't stop loving you. He loves you so much. Run to him. Run, run, run to him. He wants to forgive you. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate. He's so merciful. Just go to him. You get the sentiment of the storybook Bible. You see it? Now look at your Bible. What does Jonah actually say? Has he learned his lesson? Has he understood the character of God? No. Look what he actually says. 40 more days, you're gonna fry. Get ready to burn, Nineveh. You got 40 days, start to clock somebody. Nothing about God's grace and nothing about God's mercy. Remember, he had just disobeyed and was compassionately spared. Has he got it? No. Nothing about the loving kindness of God, the long-suffering of God, that the Ninevites are made in God's image. No, no, no. Just straight, hardcore judgment. Hellfire and brimstone. Some of you, by the way, that, that's the message that you thought the Bible was about. You've heard a message, you've heard Jonah's message, and that was what you thought the story of the Bible was. There's a big man in the sky who gave you rules, and he told you to obey them, and you can't, and you're gonna fry. You hope there's a back door to get into heaven. Now, I wanna be, I wanna be, I wanna be sensitive to Jonah here, though. Of course he feels this way still. Of course this is his sentiment. Remember, who were who the Ninevites? Who were the Assyrians? Of course he wants them to fry. Every ancient Israelite hearer of this is thinking the same thing. Fry them. Take them out. I think this helps us, and we gotta have a moment of honest reflection here to see that real compassion is difficult. Hear Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, talking about this. He says, real compassion the voluntary attachment of our heart to others. It means that the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. I think this is an understatement. He says that is deeply uncomfortable. For Jonah to go to them, to go to Nineveh and understand and put himself in their shoes and long for their rescue, that's really hard for Jonah, right? let's Let's be kind to Jonah for a moment. The book of Jonah 
this little four-chapter prophetic narrative, it wants to function like a mirror for you and for me. It wants, it wants to hold this story up to your soul, your life, and it wants to get in your face. A moment of honest reflection here, real compassion, radical compassion, mercy and forgiveness, it's really difficult. For the small slights in life, it's easy. But for the big ones, it's really hard. So let's, let's, have, a, let's have a moment of assessment here. Who is your Nineveh? Like, who is it in your life that the only message that comes to your mind when it, would, when it comes to them is fry them? They need to get theirs in the end. Like, who's your Nineveh? Could be a person, a person that wounded you, betrayed you, broke their promises to you. It could be that one person who represents a group of people that don't look like you or sound like you or talk like you or don't come from where you come, come from. They did something to you, and now that whole group, you've said, uh-uh. It could be a person that disagrees with you politically. You just say, you just write them all off. To show mercy or forgiveness or compassion to them you say, uh, I can't do that. Real compassion, really difficult. And if we don't, if we don't understand that, if we don't embrace that, if we don't go, let's, let's be honest, it's hard. This kind of radical extension of mercy, then we're gonna trivialize it. We won't ever actually do it. Who is that for you? A person, a group of people, a political ideology, a religious ideology, a person that doesn't look like you? Jonah wants to get in our face with this. These are the Assyrians for him. Passion's really hard. We have to, we have to own that fact. Second, I'd be asking the question in my own life, okay, God, that person really did hurt me. What's the limit here of my forgiveness? What's the limit of my mercy? How far should I extend that? And by the way, how far did you extend it? Let's look at our second point. What are the limits of God's compassion? Jonah goes in with his message of straight judgment. 40 more days, it's five Hebrew words, and Nineveh will be destroyed. It'll be overthrown. How will the Ninevites respond? What will they do? We'll look at the next verse. This is shocking. We're told they believed God. They called a fast. They begin, to, they begin to weep and put each, put, put, take their robes off and put in sackcloth. Now, when we see this word, believed God, most of us can't help but think like that's when they accepted Christ, that's when they walked the aisle, that's when they got baptized or something like that. Probably not that is what's in mind here. Uh, a foreigner has come into their world, and they have lots of gods. They want those gods to be happy to bless them. And this foreigner has come in and said, my God, the God of my people, wants to take you out. And they said, what do we have to do to stop this? The word reaches the king, and he takes off his royal robes, and he gets in repentance clothes, and he, he issues a decree throughout the whole city, and it goes something like this. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let the people or the animals, mind you, herds or flocks taste anything. Our animals are going to join in this fast. And he says, but let the people and the animals be covered in sackcloth. Now, it's, it's meant to be exaggerated. It's meant to be outrageous. It's sensationalized. 
Even the animals are repenting. The cows and the chickens are in on this fast. This is not what you're expecting. The Hebrew reader of this is going, surely not. Not the Ninevites. Look at what they say. Let them, let everyone call urgently on the God of Jonah and let them turn. The Hebrew word here for give up is turn. Let them, the Hebrew word is shuv. Let them give up. Let them turn from their evil ways. Let them shuv, turn from their violence. Hey, everybody, let's, let's turn. And then they ask this really insightful, they have this really insightful comment. They said, who knows? Who knows? If we turn, if we shuv from our evil, God might turn or shuv from his anger towards us. Who knows? Just maybe, maybe, just maybe, we might even be spared, even us. This uh, phrase being translated with compassion, it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of an interpretive uh, translation for us. The Hebrew word is naham. You gotta clear your throat on the H in the middle, naham. And naham is kind of hard to, de- to define as we look at it, how it's used in scripture. I, I would define it as something like this, to have an emotional response and then change an action towards a person or a circumstance. So, for example, Naham is the word used when we see that God saw the evil in the world in the days of Noah, and it said he Nahamed about making mankind. And we normally translate that as he, he relented or he was in sorrow over it, he changed his mind, he regretted, something like that. It's also used of God seeing the brokenness of Israel when they're in exile, and he Nahams towards them that he might then come and rescue them. It can be translated as to change your mind, to relent. I would, just, I would define it as to have an emotional response and then a change of action. By the way, that sounds a lot like our modern concept of compassion. So the translators of the NIV have taken that word and here they're translating it as God might turn and he might naham towards us, emotionally respond towards us and then change an action towards us. And this question, it just sits there on the page. Like the whole story hinges right here. The suspense should be building as the story is unfolding. If I'm an ancient Israelite reading this to an audience, I would pause here. Who knows? Maybe, maybe God might relent. He might turn and naham towards even this people. Maybe, and let the suspense build. We all know what it's like to wait in those moments where the suspense can build. Is the other line gonna be pink? or not, or maybe more appropriately for us right now is, is the COVID test. Like, is this line gonna be there or not? I wanna go on this trip, I wanna go on this vacation, I wanna do whatever this thing is, please don't be there, please don't be there. Those 15 minutes can be agonizing as the suspense builds. We see the same thing in sports. Was it a catch? Was his hand moving forward or not? Were they really inbounds? The whole game turns on this call. Is the call gonna stand? And the suspense builds as they wait. This, this whole narrative sits on this verse. Hinges here. Who knows? By the way, Jonah and the ancient Israelite reader of this, they want the answer to be no. Jonah ran away so God wouldn't naham towards them. What does God do? The point of the book, look at the next verse. 
If you're taking notes in your Bible, circle and underline verse 10. This is it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, he nahamed. He, he relented. He repented of what he was, had, had coming their way. He relented of it. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God Naham towards them? The Assyrians? Are you serious? This bloodthirsty, pagan, violent nation filled with lots and lots of gods. By the way, look at verses five to, five to nine. It doesn't say they smashed all their idols. It doesn't say that they became Yahweh worshipers alone. In fact, when they refer to Jonah's God, they say God, not Yahweh. Just the slightest bit of movement towards Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and he nahams towards them. Just the slightest bit of turning, and he's just overflowing with compassion. This should not surprise us, by the way. Remember Jonah? He had run from God, run the complete opposite way. He's a prophet, though. He knows better. And in the fish, just the slightest bit of movement. Go look at chapter two. Jonah doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't take responsibility. And yet the slightest bit of movement on Jonah's part, and God delighted to show him compassion. The Israelite prophet, a man under the law, who's one of the, he's part of the covenant family, desperately needed the compassion of God, and he got it. The bloodthirsty, violent Ninevites desperately needed the compassion of God, and they got it. Do you get it? Do you get it? And don't just give me a cursory, yeah, I'm a Christian, I get it. How do you know if you get it? Well, do you run to him in your sin? Do you run towards him in your repentance? Or do you run away from him in shame and fear? Do you go to God with your brokenness in prayer? In your pain and your wounds, do you run towards him? Or do you run away in anxiety and worry? That shows me if you get it or not. It shows me if I get it or not. Do you pray? Do you talk to him? Do you spend time in his word to understand what he asks of you, to understand who he is and what his compassion looks like? See, my fear is we would say all day, yeah, 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 yeah. We know God's gracious and compassionate. We sing about it, we know it, whatever. But deep down, when we think about the God of the Bible, it's a big man in the sky, a thousand miles away, unmoved by what's going on in my life. He's disappointed in me. He's mad at me. He's giving me the rules. I can't live up, and I better run. I better hide. I better mask. How else do you know if you get it? A little more challenging even. Do you extend this kind of compassion, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of mercy to people in your life? That's how you know if you really get it. Jonah doesn't. What about you? Compassion is hard. I get it. I'm with you. I agree. It's hard for me. But what Jonah's trying to teach us is the limitless compassion of God on display. And what we're going to see is it changes everything. We said at the beginning, our world is in desperate need of this kind of an idea. Yet we, we can't do it. We fall flat. We entrench on two different sides. 
we get bitter and angry and we hold on to it. It's almost like there's something preventing us from it. And by the way, conservatives struggle with it and progressives struggle with it and Republicans struggle and Democrats struggle to extend this. How do we do this? We literally have a term in our culture called compassion fatigue. How do we overcome this? Because it changes everything. Remember, real compassion is, makes us uncomfortable, but the character of compassion is the voluntary attachment of our heart to another. And the only way to have this kind of compassion unlocked in our world is by beholding the limitless compassion of our God. When we see the unbelievable grace and forgiveness of our God dispensed on us, then it frees us to dispense that to other people in our life. It's the only thing that will unlock real, genuine, world-changing compassion. When we see that God is not a big grandpa in the sky, no, 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 no. The God of the scripture is moved towards the brokenness of this world. He's moved with compassion towards his people when they struggle. He's moved to rescue them. He delights to dispense grace. So much so, hear me, that he sends his own son into the messy brokenness, into the mess of the world that we've made because of our own sin and rebellion and selfishness. When we see the compassion of God in the face of Jesus, we see one who, he touches the leper. He gets in the gutter with the poor. He weeps at the tomb of his friend. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And it's not just that. He doesn't just feel deeply towards us. His compassion is such, his mercy is such, his forgiveness is such that he enables the full measure of that brokenness to gather around him on the cross. That's how moved he is to naham towards us, to show compassion towards you and towards me. And only in beholding the compassion of God, the limitless compassion of God, in soaking in it, will we be able to extend that to other people in our world. And it would change our city, our families, and our world, and we desperately need it. Here's how we close. Paul, in just thinking on this, summarizing this, he says it this way. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, we were still yet sinners, kind of like Nineveh, kind of like Jonah in a rebellion. But that's when Christ died for the ungodly. That's when Christ died for us. Our world desperately needs it. How do we get it? Beholding the compassion of our God. This is the great challenge to you, Jesus followers in the room. I'm talking to myself as much as anybody. If you feel yourself filled with bitterness and anger, your remedy is beholding the gospel all the more. If you find yourself looking at another person or a group of people and all you can think about is not them, the remedy is beholding the gospel all the more. If you find yourself running from God in fear instead of running towards him with your sin, the remedy is beholding the gospel all the more. We're in desperate need of someone or something to push through the gridlock, to push through the stalemate, to show us the way forward, to have a, a world filled with this kind of a compassion, this kind of radical forgiveness and radical mercy. What if the breakthrough's already happened? It happened in Jesus. That's our call, to behold the gospel all the more. And to do that, we're, we're gonna sing about it. 
We're going to sing about his mercy. While we were yet sinners, his grace, his mercy towards us. We're going to declare it together. So I'm going to invite you. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing these words together to behold the gospel all the more as we worship our king. Let's pray. Jesus, we see in the face, in your face, the limitless compassion of our God, the story of the Bible summed up in you. And I can't help but think that as Gentiles on the other side of the world, we're way more like the Ninevites than we are the the ancient Israelites or Jonah. And yet your compassion was such that you rescued us. Help us to reflect on that, to behold it, and to reflect that out into our world in radical ways. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen. Let's sing.
grace of Jesus. But it changes everything. It changes everything for us. And it enables us to go into this world salt and light, bearers of that compassion in this world. In small ways and in big ways. That's our challenge. Follow our King, church. If you need prayer, if you need somebody just to pray with you or celebrate with you, right through those doors, we'd love to pray with you. Have a great, safe day out there. We'll see you right back here next week. Love you guys. Have a good week.